Chapter forty seven of Queechy by Susan Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Abigail Rasmussen. Chapter forty seven The Fur Cloak on a Journey. Methought I was, there is no man can tell what. Methought I was, and methought I had. But man is but a patched fool if he will offer to say what methought I had. Midsummer Night's Dream. Mrs. Evelyn drove down to the boat with Fleda, and did not leave her till she was safely put in charge of Mrs. Rennie. Fleda immediately retreated to the innermost depths of the ladies' cabin, hoping to find some rest for the body at least, if not forgetfulness for the mind. The latter was not to be. Mrs. Rennie was exceeding glad to see her, and bent upon knowing what had become of her since those days when they used to know each other. "'You're just the same, Miss Fleda, that you used to be,' you're very little altered i can see that though you're looking a good deal more thin and pale you had very pretty roses in your cheeks in those times yes i know i understood mrs evelyn to say you had not been well but allowing for that i can see you are just yourself still i am glad of it do you recollect miss fleda what a little thing you was then i recollect very well said fleda i'm sure of another thing you're just as good as you used to be said the housekeeper looking at her complacently do you remember how you used to come into my room to see me make jelly? I see it as well as if it was yesterday, and you used to beg me to let you squeeze the lemons, and I never could refuse you, because you never did anything I didn't want you to do. And do you mind how I used to tie you up in a big towel for fear you would stain your dress with the acid, and I'd stand and watch to see you putting all your strength to squeeze them clean, and be afraid that Mrs. Rossiter would be angry with me for letting you spoil your hands, but you used to look up and smile at me so I couldn't help myself but let you do just whatever you had a mind. You don't look quite so light and bright as you did in those times, but to be sure, you ain't feeling well. See here, just let me pull some of these things onto this settee, and you put yourself down there and rest. Pillows, let's have another pillow. There, how's that? Oh, if Fleda might have silenced her— she thought it was rather hard that she should have two talkative companions on this journey, of all others. The housekeeper paused no longer than to arrange her couch and see her comfortably laid down. And then Mr. Hugh would come in to find you and carry you away. He never could bear to be long from you. How is Mr. Hugh, Miss Fleda? He used to be always a very delicate-looking child. I remember you and him used to be always together— he was a very sweet boy. I have often said I never saw such another pair of children. How does Mr. Hugh have his health, Miss Fleda? Not very well just now, said Fleda gently, and shutting her eyes that they might reveal less. There was need, for the housekeeper went on to ask particularly, after every member of the family, and where they had been living, and as how much she conveniently could about how they had been living. She was very kind through it all, or she tried to be, but Fleda felt there was a difference since the time when her aunt kept house in State Street, and Mrs. Rennie made jellies for her. When her neighbor's affairs were exhausted, Mrs. Rennie fell back upon her own, and gave Fleda a very circumstantial account of the occurrences that were drawing her westward, how so many years ago her brother had married, and removed thither, how lately his wife had died, what in general was the character of his wife, and what, in particular, the story of her decease how many children were left without care, and the state of her brother's business which demanded a great deal, and how finally she, Mrs. Rennie, 
had received and accepted an invitation to go on to Belle Riviere and be housekeeper de son chef, and as Fleda's pale worn face had for some time given her no sign of attention, the housekeeper then hoped she was asleep, and placed herself so as to screen her and have herself a good view of everything that was going on in the cabin. Poor Fleda was not asleep, much as she rejoiced in being thought so. Mind and body could get no repose, sadly, as the condition of both called for it. Too worn to sleep, perhaps, too downhearted to rest. She blamed herself for it, and told over to herself the causes, the recent causes, she had of joy and gratitude. But it would not do. Grateful she could be, and was, but tears that were not the distillation of joy came with her gratitude, came from under the closed eyelid in spite of her. The pillow was wet with them. She excused herself, or tried to, with thinking that she was weak and not very well, and that her nerves had gone through so much for a few days past, it was no wonder if a reaction left her without her usual strength of mind, and she could not help thinking there had been a want of kindness in the Evelyns to let her come away to-day to make such a journey, at such a season, under such guardianship. But it was not all that. She knew it was not. The journey was a small matter, only a little piece of disagreeableness that was well in keeping with her other meditations. She was going home, and home had lost all its fair-seeming. Its honours were withered. It would be pleasant indeed to be there again to nurse Hugh. But nurse him for what? Life or death? She did not like to think, and beyond that she could fix upon nothing at all that looked bright in the prospect. She almost thought herself wicked, but she could not. If she might hope that her uncle would take hold of his farm like a man, and redeem his character and his family's happiness on the old place, that would have been something. But he had declared a different purpose, and Fleda knew him too well to hope that he would be better than his word. Then they must leave the old homestead, where at least the associations of happiness clung, and go to a strange land. It looked desolate to Fleda, wherever it might be. Leave Queechy, that she loved unspeakably beyond any other place in the world, where the very hills had been the friends of her childhood, and where she had seen the maples grow green and grow red through as many coloured changes of her own fortunes, the woods where the shade of her grandfather walked with her, and where the presence even of her father could be brought back by memory, where the air was sweeter and the sunlight brighter, by far, than in any other place, for both had some strange kindred with the sunny days of long ago. Poor Fleda turned her face from Mrs. Rennie, and leaving doubtful prospects and withering comforts for a while, as it were out of sight, she wept the fair outlines and the red maples of Queechy, as if they had been all she had to regret. They had never disappointed her, their countenance had comforted her many a time, under many a sorrow. After all, it was only fancy choosing at which shrine the whole offering of sorrow should be made. She knew that many of the tears that fell were due to some other. It was in vain to tell herself they were selfish. Mind and body were in no condition to struggle with anything. It had fallen dark some time, and she had wept, and sorrowed herself into a half-dozing state, when a few words spoken near aroused her, "'It is snowing,' was said by several voices. "'Going very slow, ain't we?' said Fleda's friend, in a suppressed voice. "'Yes, cause it's so dark, you see. The captain doesn't let her run.' Some poor witticism followed from a third party about the butterflies having run herself off her legs the first time she ever ran at all. And then Mrs. Rennie went on. 
Is the storm so bad, Hannah? Pretty thick, can't see far ahead. I hope we'll make out to find our way in. That's all I care for. How far are we? Not halfway yet, I don't know. Depends on what headway we make, you know. There ain't much wind yet, that's a good thing. There ain't any danger, is there? This, of course, the chambermaid denied, and a whispered colloquy followed, which Fleda did not try to catch. A new feeling came upon her weary heart, a feeling of fear. There was a sad twinge of a wish that she were out of the boat and safe back again with the Evelyns, and a fresh sense of the unkindness of letting her come away that afternoon, so attended. And then, with that sickness of heart, the forlorn feeling of being alone, of wanting some one at hand to depend upon, to look to. It is true that in case of real danger none such could be a real protection. And yet not so neither, for strength and decision can live, and make live where a moment's faltering will kill, and weakness must often falter of necessity. All the ways of the Lord are mercy and truth. To his people she thought of that, and yet she feared, for his ways are often what we do not like. A few moments of sick-heartedness and trembling, and then Fleda mentally folded her arms about a few other words of the Bible, and laid her head down and quiet again. The Lord is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in whom will I trust. And then what comes after? He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. Fleda lay quiet till she was called to tea. "'Bless me, how pale you are!' said the housekeeper, as Fleda raised herself up at this summons. "'Do you feel very bad, Miss Fleda?' Fleda said no. "'Are you frightened?' said the housekeeper. "'There's no need of that. Hannah says there's no need. We'll be in by and by.' "'No, Mrs. Rennie,' said Fleda, smiling. "'I believe I am not very strong yet.' The housekeeper and Hannah both looked at her, with strangely touched faces, and again begged her to try the refreshment of tea. But Fleda would not go down, so they served her up there with great zeal and tenderness, and then she waited patiently and watched the people in the cabin as they sat gossiping in groups or stupefying in solitude, and thought how miserable a thing is existence, where religion and refinement have not taught the mind to live in somewhat beyond and above its everyday concern. Late at night the boat arrived safe at Bridgeport, Mrs. Rennie and Fleda had resolved to stay on board till morning, when the former promised to take her to the house of a sister she had living in the town, as the cars would not leave the place till near eleven o'clock. Rest was not to be hoped for meantime in the boat, on the miserable couch which was the best of the cabin could furnish, but Fleda was so thankful to have finished the voyage in safety that she took thankfully everything else, even lying awake. It was a wild night. The wind rose soon after they reached Bridgeport, and swept furiously over the boat, rattling the tiller chains and making Fleda so nervously alive to possibilities that she got up two or three times to see if the boat were fast to her moorings. It was very dark, and only by a fortunately placed lantern she could see a bit of the dark wharf and one of the posts belonging to it, from which the lantern never budged. So at last, quieted or tired out, nature had her rights, and she slept. It was not refreshing rest, after all, and Fleda was very glad that Mrs. Rennie's impatience for something comfortable made her willing to be astir as early as there was any chance of finding people up in the town. Few were abroad when they left the boat, they too. Not a foot had printed the deep layer of snow that covered the wharf, 
It had fallen thick during the night. Just then it was not snowing. The clouds seemed to have taken a recess, for they hung threatening yet. One uniform-laden canopy was over the whole horizon. "'The snow ain't done yet,' said Mrs. Rennie. "'No, but the worst of our journey is over,' said Fleda. "'I am glad to be on the land.' "'I hope we'll get something to eat here,' said Mrs. Rennie, as they stepped along over the wharf. "'They ought to be ashamed to give people such a mess, when it's just as easy to have things decent. "'My, how it has snowed! I declare if I'd a known, I'd a had waited till somebody had tracked a path for us. But I guess it's just as well we didn't. You look as like a ghost as you can, Miss Fleda. You'll be better when you get some breakfast. You'd better catch on to my arm.' "'all waking up the seven sleepers, but what I'll have something to put life into you directly.' Fleda thanked her, but declined the proffered accommodation, and followed her companion in the narrow beaten path a few travellers had made in the street, feeling enough like a ghost, if want of flesh and blood reality were enough. It seemed a dream that she was walking through the grey light in the empty streets of the little town. Everything looked and felt so wild and strange. If it was a dream, she was soon waked out of it. In the house— where they were presently received and established in sufficient comfort, there was such a little specimen of masculine humanity as never showed his face in a dreamland yet, a little bit of reality enough to bring any dreamer to his senses. He seemed to have been brought up on stove heat, for he was ale glowing yet from a very warm bed he had just tumbled out of somewhere, and he looked at the pale, thin stranger by his mother's fireplace, as if she were an anomaly in the comfortable world. If he could have contented himself with looking— but he planted himself firmly on the rug just two feet from Fleda, and with a laudable and most persistent desire to examine into the causes of what he could not understand, he commenced inquiring. "'Are you cold? Say, are you cold? Say!' in a tone most provokingly made up of wonder and dullness. In vain Fleda answered him that she was not very cold and would soon not be cold at all by that good fire. The question came again, apparently, in all its freshness from the interrogator's mind. "'Are you cold?' say. And silence, and words, looking grave and laughing, were alike thrown away. Fleda shut her eyes at length, and used the small remnant of her patience to keep herself quiet till she was called to breakfast. After breakfast she accepted the offer of her hostess to go upstairs and lie down till the cars were ready, and there got some real and much-needed refreshment of sleep and rest. It lasted longer than she had counted upon, for the cars were not ready at eleven o'clock, the snow last night had occasioned some perplexing delays. It was not till near three o'clock that the often-dispatched messenger to the depot brought back word that they might go as soon as they pleased. It pleased Mrs. Rennie to be in a great hurry, for her baggage was in the car, she said, and it would be dreadful if she and it went different ways. So Fleda and her companion hastened down to the station-house, and chose their places some time before anybody else thought of coming. They had a long and very tiresome waiting to go through, and room for some uneasy speculations about being belated and a night journey. But Fleda was stronger now, and bore it all with her usual patient submission. At length, by degrees, the people dropped in and filled the cars, and they got off. "'How early do you suppose we shall reach Greenfield?' said Fleda. "'Why, we ought to get there between nine and ten o'clock, I should think,' said her companion. "'I hope the snow will hold up till we get there.' Fleda thought it a hope very unlikely to be fulfilled. There were as yet no snowflakes to be seen nearby, but at a little distance the low clouds seemed already to enshroud every clump of trees and put a mist about every hill. They surely would descend more palpably soon. 
It was pleasant to be moving swiftly on again towards the end of their journey, if Fleda could have rid herself of some qualms about the possible storm and certain darkness. They might not reach Greenfield by ten o'clock, and she disliked travelling in the night at any time. But she could do nothing, and she resigned herself anew to the comfort and trust she had built upon last night. She had the seat next to the window, and with a very sober kind of pleasure watched the pretty landscape they were flitting by, misty as her own prospects. Darkening as they? No, she would not allow that thought. Surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, and I can trust Him. And she found a strange sweetness in that naked trust and clinging of faith, that faith never tried, never knows. But the breath of daylight was already gone, though the universal spread of snow gave the eye a fair range yet, white, wide as far as the view could reach, with that light misty drapery round everything in the distance, and merging into the soft grey sky, and every now and then, as the wind served, a thick wreath of white vapour came by from the engine, and hid all, eddying past the windows, and then skimming off away over the snowy ground, from which it would not lift. A more palpable veil, for a moment, of the distant things, and then broken, scattered, fragmentary, lovely in its frailty, and vanishing. It was a pretty afternoon, but a sober, and the bare black solitary trees near hand, which the cars flew by, looked to Fleda constantly like finger-posts of the past, and back at their bidding her thoughts and her spirits went, back and forward, comparing in her own mental view what had once been so gay and genial with its present bleak and chill condition. And from this, in sudden contrast, came a strangely fair and bright image of heaven, its exchange of peace for all this turmoil, of rest for all this weary bearing up of mind and body against the ills that beset both, of its quiet home for this unstable strange world where nothing is at a standstill, of perfect and pure society for the unsatisfactory and wearying friendships that the most are here. The thought came to Fleda like one of those unearthly clear northwestern skies from which a storm-cloud was rolled away, that seem almost to mock earth with their distance from its defilement and agitations. Truly I know that it shall be well with them that fear God. She could remember Hugh. She could not think of the words without him, and yet say them with a full bounding assurance. And in that weary and uneasy afternoon her mind rested and delighted itself with two lines of George Herbert, that only a Christian can well understand. Thy power and love my love and trust make one place everywhere but the night fell and fleda at last could see nothing but the dim rail fences they were flying by and the reflection from some stationary lantern on the engine or one of the forward cars that always threw a bright spot of light on the snow still she kept her eyes fastened out of the window anything but the view inboard they were going slowly now and frequently stopping for they were out of time and some other trains were to be looked out for nervous work, and whenever they stopped the voices which at other times were happily drowned in the rolling of the car wheels, rose and jarred in discords far less endurable. Fleda shut her ears to the words, but it was easy enough without words to understand the indications of coarse and disagreeable natures in whose neighbourhood she disliked to find herself, of whose neighbourhood she exceedingly disliked to be reminded. The muttered oath, the more than muttered jest, the various laughs that tell so much of head or heart emptiness, the shadow but sure tokens of that in human nature which one would not realize and which one strives to forget, 
Fleda shrank within herself and would gladly have stopped her ears, did sometimes covertly. Oh, if home could be but reached, and she out of this atmosphere! How well she resolved that never another time, by any motive, or delicacy, or otherwise, she would be tempted to trust herself in the like again, without more than womanly protection. The hours rolled wearily on. They heard nothing of Greenfield yet. They came at length to a more obstinate stop than usual. Fleda took her hands from her ears to ask what was the matter. "'I don't know,' said Mrs. Rennie. "'I hope they won't keep us a great while waiting here.' The door swung open, and the red comforter and tarpaulin hat of one of the brakemen showed itself a moment. Presently, after "'Can't get on,' was repeated by several voices in the various tones of assertion, interrogation, and impatience. The women folks, having nobody to ask questions of, had nothing for it but to be quiet and use their ears. "'Can't get on,' said another man, coming in. "'There's nothing but snow out of doors. Tracks all foul.' A number of people instantly rushed out to see. "'Can't get on any further to-night?' asked a quiet old gentleman of the newsbringer. "'Not another inch, sir. Worse off than old Dobbs was in the mill-pond. We've got half-way, but we can't turn and go back.' "'And what are we going to do?' said an unhappy right, not quick in drawing conclusions. "'I suppose we'll all be stiff by the morning,' answered the other, gravely, "'unless the wood holds out, which ain't likely.' How much there is, in even a cheery tone of voice! Fleda was sorry when this man took his away with him. There was a most uncheering confusion of tongues for a few minutes among the people he had left, and then the car was near deserted. Everybody went out to bring his own wits to bear upon the obstacles, in the way of their progress. Mrs. Rennie observed that she might as well warm her feet while she could, and went to the stove for the purpose. Poor Fleda felt as if she had no heart left. She sat still in her place and leaned her head upon the back of the deserted chair before her, in utter inability to keep it up. The night journey was bad enough, but this was more than she had counted upon. Danger, to be sure. There might be none in standing still there all night, unless perhaps the danger of death from the cold. She had heard of such things. But to sit there till morning among all those people, and obliged to hear their unloosed tongues, Fleda felt almost that she could not bear it, a most forlorn feeling, with which came anew a keen reflection upon the Evelyns, for having permitted her to run even the hazard of such a trouble. And in the morning, if well it came, who would take care of them in all the subsequent annoyance and difficulty of getting out of the snow? It must have taken very little time for these thoughts to run through her head, for half a minute had not flown, when the vacant seat beside her was occupied, and a hand softly touched one of hers which lay in her lap. Fleda started up in terror to have the hand taken and her eye met by Mr. Carleton. "'Mr. Carleton! Oh, sir, how glad I am to see you!' was said by eye and cheek as unmistakably as by word. "'Have you come from the clouds?' "'I might rather ask that question of you,' said he, smiling. "'You have been invisible ever since the night when I had the honour of playing the part of your physician.' "'I could not help it, sir. I was sure you would believe it.' I wanted exceedingly to see you, and to thank you as well as I could. But I was obliged to leave it. She could hardly say so much. Her swimming eye gave him more thanks than he wanted. But she scolded herself vigorously, and after a few minutes was able to look and speak again. I hoped you would not think me ungrateful, sir, but in case you might, I wrote to let you know that you were mistaken. 
"'You wrote to me,' said he. "'Yes, sir, yesterday morning. At least, it was put in the post yesterday morning.' "'It was more unnecessary than you are aware of,' he said with a smile, and turning one of his deep looks away from her. "'Are we fast here for all night, Mr. Carleton?' she said presently. "'I am afraid so. I believe so. I have been out to examine, and the storm is very thick.' "'You need not look so about it for me,' said Fleda. "'I don't care for it at all now.' And a long-drawn breath half told how much she had cared for it, and what a burden was gone. "'You look very little like breasting hardships,' said Mr. Carleton, bending on her so exactly the look of affectionate care that she had often had from him when she was a child, that Fleda was very near overcome again. "'Oh, you know,' she said, speaking by dint of great force upon herself, you know the will is everything, and mine is very good. But he looked extremely unconvinced and unsatisfied. "'I am so comforted to see you sitting there, sir,' Fleda went on gratefully, "'that I am sure I can bear patiently all the rest.' His eye turned away, and she did not know what to make of his gravity. But a moment after he looked again, and spoke with his usual manner. "'That business you entrusted to me,' he said in a lower tone, I believe you will have no more trouble with it. So I thought, so I gathered the other night, said Fleda, her heart and her face suddenly full of many things. The note was given up. I saw it burned. Fleda's two hands clasped each other mutely. And will he be silent? I think he will choose to be so for his own sake. The only sake that would avail in that quarter, Fleda knew. How had Mr. Carleton ever managed it? And Charlton, she said, after a few minutes' tearful musing. I had the pleasure of Captain Rossiter's company to breakfast the next morning, and I am happy to report that there is no danger of any trouble arising there. "'How shall I ever thank you, sir?' said Fleda, with trembling lips. His smile was so peculiar she almost thought he was going to tell her. But just then Mrs. Rennie, having accomplished the desirable temperature of her feet, came back to warm her ears, and placed herself on the next seat, happily not the one behind, but the one before them, and where her eyes were thrown away, and the lines of Mr. Carleton's mouth came back to their usual quiet expression. "'You were in particular haste to reach home?' he asked. Fleda said no, not in the abstract. It made no difference whether to-day or to-morrow. "'You had heard no ill news of your cousin?' "'Not at all, but it is difficult to find an opportunity of making the journey, and I thought I ought to come yesterday.' He was silent again, and the baffled speakers, after ways and means who had gone out to try arguments upon the storm, began to come pouring back into the car, and bringing with them not only their loud and coarse voices, with every shade of disagreeableness, aggravated by ill-humour, but also an average amount of snow upon their hats and shoulders. The place was soon full of a reeking atmosphere of great coats. Fleda was trying to put up her window, but Mr. Carleton gently stopped her, and began bargaining with a neighbouring fellow-traveller for the opening of his. "'Well, sir, I'll open it, if you wish,' said the man civilly. "'But they say we shan't have nothing to make fires with more than an hour or two longer, so maybe you'll think we can't afford to let any too much cold in.' The gentleman, however, persisting in his wish, and the wish being, moreover, backed with those arguments to which every grade of human reason is accessible, the window was opened. At first the rush of fresh air was a great relief, but it was not very long before the raw, snowy atmosphere which made its way in was felt to be more dangerous, if it was more endurable, 
than the close, pent-up one it displaced. Mr. Carleton ordered the window closed again, and Fleda's glance of meek grateful patience was enough to pay any reasonable man for his share of the suffering. Her share of it was another matter. Perhaps Mr. Carleton thought so, for he immediately bent himself to reward her and to avert the evil, and for that purpose brought into play every talent of manner and conversation that could beguile the time and make her forget what she was among. If success were his reward, he had it. He withdrew her attention completely from all that was around her, and without tasking it, she could not have borne that. He did not seem to task himself, but without making any exertion, he held her eye and ear, and guarded both from communication with things disagreeable. He knew it. There was not a change in her eye's happy interest, till in the course of the conversation, Fleda happened to mention Hugh, and he noticed the saddening of the eye immediately afterwards. "'Is he ill?' said Mr. Carleton. "'I don't know,' said Fleda, faltering a little. "'He was not, very, but a few weeks ago.' Her eye explained the broken sentences which there in the neighbourhood of other ears she dared not finish. "'He will be better after he has seen you,' said Mr. Carleton gently. "'Yes,' a very sorrowful and uncertain yes, with an if in the speaker's mind which she did not bring out. "'Can you sing your old song yet?' said Mr. Carleton softly. "'Yet one thing secures us, whatever betide.' But Fleda burst into tears. "'Forgive me,' he whispered earnestly, "'for reminding you of that. You did not need it, and I have only troubled you.' "'No, sir, you have not,' said Fleda. "'It did not trouble me.' "'And Hugh knows it better than I do. "'I cannot bear anything to-night, I believe.' "'So you have remembered that, Mr. Carleton?' "'She said a minute after. "'Do you remember that?' said he, "'putting her old little Bible into her hand. "'Fleda seized it, "'but she could hardly bear the throng of images "'that started up around it. "'The smooth, worn cover brought so back "'the childish happy days "'when it had been her constant companion.' the shadows of the Queechy of old, and Cynthia and her grandfather, and the very atmosphere of those times when she had led a light-hearted, strange, wild life all alone with them, reading the encyclopedia and hunting out the wood-springs. She opened the book and slowly turned over the leaves where her father's hand had drawn those lines of remark and affection round many a passage. The very look of them she knew, but she could not see it now, for her eyes were dim and tears were dropping fast into her lap. She hoped Mr. Carleton did not see them, but she could not help it. She could only keep the book out of the way of being blotted. And there were other and later associations she had with it, too. How dear! How tender! How grateful! Mr. Carleton was quite silent for a good while, till the tears had ceased. Then he bent towards her so as to be heard no further off. "'It has been for many years my best friend and companion,' he said in a low tone. Fleda could make no answer, even by look. "'At first, he went on softly, "'I had a strong association of you with it, "'but the time came when I lost that entirely, "'and itself quite swallowed up the thought of the giver.' "'A quick glance and smile told how well Fleda understood, "'how heartily she was pleased with that, "'but she instantly looked away again.' "'And now,' said Mr. Carleton, after a pause, "'for some time I have got the association again, "'and I do not choose to have it so. "'I have come to the resolution 
to put the book back into your hands and not receive it again unless the giver go with the gift fleda looked up a startled look of wonder into his face but the dark eye left no doubt of the meaning of his words and in unbounded confusion she turned her own and her attention ostensibly to the book in her hand though sight and sense were almost equally out of her power for a few minutes poor fleda felt as if all sensation had retreated to her finger ends she turned the leaves over and over as if willing to cheat herself or her companion into the belief that she had something to think of there while associations and images of the past were gone with a vengeance swallowed up in a tremendous reality of the present and the book which a minute ago was her father's bible was now what was it something of mr carleton's which she must give back to him but still she held it and looked at it conscious of no one distinct idea but that and a faint one besides that he might like to be repossessed of his property in some reasonable time time like everything else was in a whirl the only steady thing in creation seemed to be that perfectly still and moveless figure by her side till her trembling fingers admonished her they would not be able to hold anything much longer and gently and slowly without looking her hand put the book back towards mr carleton that both were detained together she knew but hardly felt the thing was that she had given it there was no other answer and there was no further need that mr carleton should make any efforts for diverting her from the scene and the circumstances where they were probably he knew that for he made none he was perfectly silent for a long time and fleda was deaf to any other voice that could be raised near or far she could not even think mrs rennie was happily snoring and most of the other people had descended into their coat collars or figuratively speaking had lowered their blinds by tilting over their hats in some uncomfortable position that signified sleep and comparative quiet had blessed the place for some time as little noticed indeed by fleda as noise would have been the sole thing that she clearly recognized in connection with the exterior world was that clasp in which one of her hands lay she did not know that the car had grown quiet and that only an occasional grunt of ill-humour or waking-up colloquy testified that it was the unwanted domicile of a number of human beings who were harboring there in a disturbed state of mind but this state of things could not last the time came that had been threatened when their last supply of extrinsic warmth was at an end despite shut windows the darkening of the stove was presently followed by a very sensible and fast increasing change of temperature and this addition to their causes of discomfort roused every one of the company from his temporary lethargy the growl of dissatisfied voices awoke again more gruff than before the spirit of jesting had long languished and now died outright and in its stead came some low and deep and bitter-spoken curses poor mrs rennie shook off her somnolency and shook her shoulders a little business shake admonitory to herself to keep cool and fleda came to the consciousness that some very disagreeable chills were making their way over her are you warm enough said mr carleton suddenly turning to her not quite said fleda hesitating i feel the cold a little please don't mr carleton she added earnestly as she saw him preparing to throw off his cloak the identical black fox which constance had described with so much vivacity pray do not i am not very cold i can bear a little i am not so tender as you think me i do not need it and you would feel the want very much after wearing it 
I won't put it on. But he smilingly bade her stand up, stooping down and taking one of her hands to enforce his words, and giving her at the same time the benefit of one of those looks of good-humoured wilfulness, to which his mother always yielded, and to which Fleda yielded instantly, though with a colour considerably heightened at the slight touch of peremptoriness in his tone. "'You are not offended with me, Elfie?' he said, in another manner, when she had sat down again and he was arranging the heavy folds of the cloak. "'Offended?' a glance answered. "'You shall have everything your own way,' he whispered gently, as he stooped down to bring the cloak under her feet. "'Except yourself.' "'What good care should be taken of that exception,' was said in the dark eye at which Fleda hardly ventured half a glance. She had much ado to command herself. She was shielded again from all the sights and sounds within reach. She was in a maze. The comfort of the fur cloak was curiously mixed with the feeling of something else, of which that was an emblem, a surrounding of care and strength which would effectually be exerted for her protection, somewhat that Fleda had not known for many a long day, the making up of the old want. Fleda had it in her heart to cry like a baby. Such a dash of sunlight had fallen at her feet that she hardly dared look at it for fear of being dazzled, but she could not look anywhere that she did not see the reflection. In the meantime the ear full of people settled again into sullen quietude. The cold was not found propitious to quarrelling. Those who could subsided anew into lethargy. Those who could not gathered in their outpost to make the best defence they might of the citadel. Most happily it was not an extreme night, cold enough to be very disagreeable, and even, without a fur cloak, dangerous, but not enough to put even noses and ears in immediate jeopardy. Mr. Carleton had contrived to procure a comfortable wrapper for Mrs. Rennie, from a Yankee, who, for the sake of being a warm man, as to his pockets, was willing to be cold otherwise for a time. The rest of the great coats and cloaks, which were so alert and erect a little while ago, were doubled up on every side in all sorts of despondent attitudes. A dull quiet brooded over the assembly, and Mr. Carleton walked up and down the vacant space. Once he caught an anxious glance from Fleda, and came immediately to her side. "'You need not be troubled about me,' he said, with a most genial smile. "'I am not suffering. Never was further from it in my life.' Fleda could neither answer nor look. "'There are not many hours of the night to wear out,' he said. "'Can't you follow your neighbor's example?' She shook her head. "'This watching is too hard for you. You will have another headache to-morrow.' "'No, perhaps not,' she said, with a grateful look up. "'You do not feel the cold now, Elfie?' "'Not at all, not in the least. I am perfectly comfortable. I am doing very well.' He stood still, and the changing lights and shades on Fleda's cheek grew deeper. "'Do you know where we are, Mr. Carleton?' "'Somewhere between a town, the name of which I have forgotten, and a place called Quarantin, I think. And Quarantin, they tell me, is but a few miles from Greenfield. Our difficulties will vanish, I hope, with the darkness.' He walked again, and Fleda mused, and wondered at herself in the black fox. She did not venture another look, though her eye took in nothing very distinctly but the outlines of that figure passing up and down through the car— he walked perseveringly, and weariness at last prevailed over everything else with Fleda. She lost herself with her head leaning against the bit of wood between the windows. The rousing of the great coats in the growing grey light roused her before her uneasy sleep had lasted an hour. The lamps were out, the car was again spotted with two long rows of window-panes, 
through which the light as yet came but dimly. The morning had dawned at last, and seemed to have brought with it a fresh accession of cold, for everybody was on the stir. Fleda put up her window to get a breath of fresh air and see how the day looked. A change of weather had come with the dawn. It was not fine yet. The snowing had ceased, but the clouds hung overhead still, though not with the laden uniformity of yesterday. They were higher and broken into many a soft grey fold that promised to roll away from the sky by and by. The snow was deep on the ground, every visible thing lapped in a thick white covering, a still, very grave, very pretty winter landscape, but somewhat dreary in its aspect to a train full of people, fixed in the midst of it, out of sight of human habitation. Fleda felt that, but only in the abstract. To her it did not seem dreary. She enjoyed the wild solitary beauty of the scene very much, with many a grateful thought of what might have been. As it was, she left difficulties entirely to others. As soon as it was light, the various inmates of this strange dormitory gathered themselves up and set out on foot for Quarantine. By one of them Mr. Carleton sent an order for a sleigh, which in as a short a time as possible arrived, and transported him and Fleda and Mrs. Rennie, and one other ill-bested woman, safely to the little town of Quarantine. End of chapter 47